0: Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to study your word. Thank you for granting us what we see in first Peter, uh, that we would be your elect exiles chosen through your foreknowledge, that we would be sanctified by your spirit and all of that for obedience to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood, covered, cleansed. Thank you for the one who writes this text, one who knew very well about your grace. So I pray as we come now, we, we've been in Ecclesiastes, now we move back to the New Testament in 1 Peter. And Father, all of your word is useful for training in righteousness, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, that we as your children may become competent and equipped for every good work. So thank you for breathing it up. Thank you that it's in our language. We continue to pray, Father, that you would send laborers out that would translate your word so that all people's would have scripture in their language whether they have a written language or they're just an orality network mm-hmm. father we pray that they would be able to have scripture in a way that they could hear and understand so that they could worship you rightly mm-hmm. so father we pray for those that are immersed with people groups that are dealing with languages and trying to figure out faithfulness to your original languages mm-hmm. While trying to translate it for these others, would you grant every grace they need, every wisdom, every insight, every step of that translation process? And would you help us to be mindful, especially for many of us who have two and three and four Bibles at home? This is a word from Jesus. Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a word from any other person or like a novel at a bookstore. There's a word that we've already said, the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. This is a word from him to us. So would you incline our hearts to it? Would you help us to pay attention? Would you minimize distractions, both in this room and even, even in our own minds? Distractions that we brought into this place. And would your grace meet us where we are? Move us toward you and then help us to rejoice in what we see here. Peter writes this, not for our confusion, but our comfort. Not for our debate, but for our discipleship. And so, Father, may we rejoice in who you are. and May we exult in who you are. A God who rescues. A God who knows our name. Who of his own accord and to the praise of his own glory has chosen to rescue we who all had gone astray. And at great cost, There's a reason the phrase sprinkling of Christ's blood has to be mentioned for. This is the only way any of us could become your people. Great cost to your son. So may we hold precious the gospel. May the gospel be clear and effectual. Maybe in this room today, there are those who need to hear and repent and believe. Move in their lives. God, grant salvation. Grant repentance. In your kindness, lead them to it. For we who have been granted such a gift, may we hold it precious today. And all through our city, Father, may the word go forth. May the gospel be effectual. We pray this morning for Belden Baptist, Father, that the word would be clear there. That your spirit would meet with those who are gathered. And you would use your word in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated this morning. If it's your first time with us, we tend to (laughs) preach through Bible books. It's what we do because we believe that nothing is better for God's people than God's word. We just finished a series in Ecclesiastes last week. And, of course, the last word in Ecclesiastes is this is the end of the matter, to fear God and to obey his commands. And then as we pick up in 1 Peter today, we're only studying the first two verses, but it says in verse 2 that that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So I love that where we end in Ecclesiastes, we pick up in 1 Peter. that that theme of fearing God and obeying him is picked up. Well, right, continues on because ultimately the Bible has one overall message, and so we're grateful that, that you can be here tonight. We will have life groups all over all over town. Um, parents who do have children, drop their children here um, by five. Uh, starting at five thirty. Sorry, not by five thirty. Let me not give Matthew. a hard time Starting at five thirty and then they go to life groups around town and then we pick children back up at seven thirty. children will be going through first peter one and two again and life groups all over first peter one and two james underwood raise your hand james and gary right in front of him will be hosting they're hosting a life group right after the right after the service that you can go and do lunch together and then be able to move into the text the rest of our life group leaders would you just lift your hands and hold them up just for a moment so if if you are not in a life group yet but you're curious about one Right after the service, look at these shirts, look at what they're wearing, all right, you can find them, and they can help you get uh, with a life group. I want to say that uh, I also am going to offer something after our service today, 10 minutes after our service, we want to give you time, those of you who do have children in the nursery, we need to gather them, but in the past, like when we preached through Romans 9 and Romans 11, some difficult, weighty, heavy texts we provide a time for question and answer time afterward because a sermon is not a dialogue. A sermon is a proclamation that we're giving. And so sometimes there may need to be some things that are clarified. And so occasionally we like to provide an opportunity for that after the service, a question and answer about what's in the text, a clarifying from maybe something that was in the sermon. So 10 minutes after the service ends today, we're gonna provide another time for a Q&A right in here if you want to participate in that, you have some questions for Matthew and Mitchell, then they'll, they'll be, I'm just kidding, be here uh, to receive those. I'm excited about preaching through First Peter. The last time I did this, I made everybody mad at the beginning. I was a young pastor in Baton Rouge, and this was one of the very first texts that I walked through on Wednesday nights. And I was excited about First Peter because it's so much about, hey, this isn't our home. If we're in Christ, we are citizens of heaven, that we, we're just sojourning here. We're aliens. And then also there's a word of suffering that's involved in, in wanting to prepare my people to suffer well. But somehow in all of my youthful excitement as a 28-year-old pastor, I failed to see how Peter started his work, which is to God's elect chosen through the foreknowledge of God. And you would say, why are we dealing with just two verses today? I don't know. Maybe because we have election, foreknowledge, baptism, I mean, sanctification, obedience, sprinkling with blood, these sorts of things. It seems sufficient for a topic to, to cover here. And I'm, at Crosspoint in Baton Rouge, I made everybody mad. I made those who came from maybe a more Reformed or Presbyterian background. They were upset that I started with election rather than depravity. And I said, well, that's because I'm starting where Peter started. I'm not starting where Calvin started. And then those that were on the other end of the spectrum were upset that I used words such as election of foreknowledge. And I was like, well, I used the words that Peter used. And so I went home (laughs) and laid on my bed and sort of just smiled that I had made everyone mad by just preaching the text, right? Awesome. I can't wait to see how it turns out today. So why do we do this? Because... As God's people, we are called to walk through line by line, and we can't skip difficult texts. We can't skip phrases we just don't like. Later on in First Peter, he's going to say, they disobeyed as they were destined to do. Well, we need to wrestle with that. We need to know what's there. We need to know what the word election means, what the word foreknowledge means. And I didn't grow up in a congregation where we knew what those meant. I'm certain I, I grew up in a congregation where I never even heard those words. I don't remember ever walking through First Peter. I know we didn't walk through Romans. And and so uh, we don't skip difficult texts. You know why? Because God has given us all of these texts on purpose. And he's given them for our good and our growth. And so we want to walk through and see what's here. Uh, have you ever experienced something that you were not prepared for? You ever? Right? And maybe there's something that you, you experienced that you thought, man, if I just known this before I got into it? Or if someone had shared this, there are a lot of pastoral experiences because seminary can't train you in everything. So there's a lot of pastoral experiences that you find yourself in days, again, as Mr. Tommy says, you never know what you're gonna be doing in a day. Uh, that you're like, man, I wish someone had given me a word here. First Peter is a word of preparation. It is a word for those who are going to be suffering because they are in Christ suffering because they're the aroma of Christ suffering because they're living lives of holiness because as we testify here with Alex that there's a change that's occurred and so we no longer live as we used to live and so Paul would write to Timothy and say indeed any who want to come after Christ will be persecuted and so Peter is writing to those who are believers and they're going to be persecuted and it's a word of preparation Uh, For those of you who have the notes that we give at the very top of your notes, I like to put the passage in a sentence each week to kind of boil it down to one main thought so that it's clear for us, so that we can go away from here and we can know here's, here's the main thought, main emphasis that God has given us in this text. And then... Not that that would be an end in itself, but that we could use that to then teach others and disciple others. So here's the passage in the sentence for you. As God's elect exiles, we're called to hope and holiness because the Father, Son, and Spirit have done something for us that the world can never change. So as God's elect exiles, and the title of the sermon today is Dear Elect Exiles, we are called to hope and holiness because the Father, Son, and Spirit have done something for us that the world can never change. Your truths from this text, normally I like to write teaching truths, application truths as our, as our teaching point. Today those truths are, are going to build off of you in summary fashion. We're just going to walk through the text and they're going to build off of one another but it's why i've written an application points for you along each one because we want to be clear how they are for us and it begins with the very first word of the text peter peter and our first truth that we want to pull out is obviously that peter wrote this text and now what i love about this is that one who others might have written off is the one that god uses to write this text For those of you who may not know who Peter is, Peter is one of the first disciples that Jesus called. Matter of fact, one night he and his brothers and and their friends that were partners in fishing had been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus is trying to teach a crowd and and he, he ends up asking Peter for use of his boat so he can get away, get some separation from the crowd, but be able to project out to them. And after he finishes teaching, he turns to Peter and says, hey man, let's set out here, let's go fishing. And uh, he tells him, hey, cast your nets over here. And, of course, Peter, uh, argumentative from the very beginning, debating from the very beginning. And Jesus at least knew what he was getting into. Uh, Peter says, Lord, we've, we've fished all night, but we had not caught anything. But because you say do this, I'll do it. There's a word there for us, too, of just obedience, right? Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Peter's like, you know, hey, we're fishermen. I don't know who you are. You just got my boat. But uh, we can't do this all the time. We didn't catch anything, but Okay right so even when it doesn't make sense to us there's something about obedience so they do and of course there's such a large catch of fish that the boat begins to sink they have to call their friends over and i love peter's immediate response he says to jesus lord go away from me for i'm a sinful man he recognizes christ and his holiness and he recognizes himself for who he is and and what we've said before jesus is not there to go away from peter because he's unholy Jesus is there to take away Peter's unholiness by taking it upon himself. And Peter is going to be used. And I'm really grateful for Peter because Peter's the guy who could never control his mouth or his actions. And and so he would be the one that would affirm from the very beginning. Not only was he the one who said, recognize Jesus, hey, go away from me, Lord, you're holy. He would be the one that would say, you're the Christ. And then in the very next breath when jesus starts talking about what the christ will do suffer and peter's like no 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 you got it wrong and jesus says you're satan right and so i love that peter had a good moment and a bad moment and they were right after each other right and then you know the famous hey even if all others fall away from you i'll be there for you and he does try to be he pulls the sword cuts off a guy's ear right Jesus has to heal before he can even move on toward the cross. Peter, Jesus is having to clean up Peter's mess before he goes to clean up Peter's real mess of sin, right? In the garden, he has to heal this guy. And so ultimately that leads to Peter doing something that we would think if God was never going to use someone again, this would be a good candidate for it. While Jesus is being, uh, going through his mock trials, going through his trials, Peter is there. And three times people are going to say, hey, aren't you with this guy? You're with this guy, right? That's what Alex has just demonstrated for us. Through his baptism, I'm with Jesus, right? Uh, They say, hey, aren't you with this guy? And Peter would say, I don't know him. (laughs) No, of just all the places I could be tonight, this fire looked warm, you know? I don't know that guy. And they're like, look, your accent gives you way. He even calls down curses, emphatically denying Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus looks him right in the eyes. And he hears the rooster crow, which Jesus told him was going to happen. Uh, he would deny him three times before that and he goes out and he weeps bitterly and if you ever think hey man Jesus isn't going to use this guy again because that's a good candidate right how many of you would say someone who denies Jesus even calling down curses on themselves curses from God right you would say that's probably a good candidate for not being used again by Jesus right and then we see that after the resurrection we see Peter's repentance and we see jesus's reconciliation and restoration and then the assignment to feed the sheep and so as we come to this text and we see peter he wants you to know above all this letter that he writes to you and this is like our emails right i'm thankful for our our email we can understand this a little bit later a little bit better because i look at my inbox and i can know who wrote it and i've got the first couple lines of what they're writing you know so i can know do i want to click this now do I have the strength to click and read this now? I see how it begins. I see who it's from. No, Mitch, I'm not reading this now, right? And so, so that you can see. And so Peter's writing, and, and what he wants you to see, if you look at the end of verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so this is a letter of grace to you from the Lord. And then at the very end of our text, turn to 1 Peter 5, that he ends with grace He says in verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand for a minute. So he says, look, this is a grace from you and I want you to stand in this grace. And so I love that the one who is sending this word of grace had received much of it himself. And so it's a word of grace and it's hope for us. And it is a picture, as he talks about multiplied grace, And standing in this grace and we see who writes it just look at the first word Peter we can know that God's grace is effectual from the beginning that it covered all of Peter's sin even the wretched blatant denial of Jesus has been covered by the powerful blood of Christ is that not incredible right and so in case you haven't denied Jesus verbally and calling down a curse for you whatever else your sin has been there's hope for you too That his grace is effectual, that his grace does cover all of our sin. Not only does his grace cover our sin, his grace makes us competent for serving. We learn, as Paul writes to Titus, that God's grace has appeared, uh, that uh, we might have salvation, but also then training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness, and that we have this grace that God gives for all that he calls us to God does not ask us to do anything in our own strength or resources. It is a grace that he gives to make us competent. And, and why is that important? Because Peter was a fisherman. Peter was not a scholar. And so here we have a word, and there are scholars in our day who mock and say, there's no way Bill Dance wrote this book, right? There's no way that, and that yes, that's for all of us 40 and above. I do that sometimes, right? <laughs> Young books, just figure it out when you go to the pyramid. So... So here, there's no way this fisherman wrote this. He didn't even have an education, but he is made competent because the spirit equips him. First Peter is about the spirit's empowering. It's not about Peter's education. It is what God does with us. And there should be a word of hope for all of you with the very first word that you see in this text. His grace is sufficient for me. His grace can cover my sin, and his grace can make me competent to serve as well for whatever his purposes are. And certainly later on, as Peter writes about the devil prowling around like a lion, there's no one who knew that more than him. He knew that very well. It is a word of grace. But two other aspects of 1 Peter, just say so quickly, it is a word of preparation. Hey, get ready. The full suffering that would come it was not yet occurring Uh, There would be empire-wide suffering that occurred under Nero. And there would be others that would come in the emperors that followed Nero. And this is the picture of, hey, it's, it's coming. It's on the horizon. We can see it. And even in some pockets there, it's already occurring. But it's a word of preparation. But even more, it's a word of participation. Peter says, I'm in it with you. I, I, I'm in it with you. I'm, a, I'm an elder too. I'm caring about the flock that God has entrusted to me. And Peter is going to lose his life in the persecution that occurs under Nero there in the mid 60s. So this was written sometime before there, 63, 64 AD, before Peter is put to death, sometime 65 or after. And so, the application that you'll see in your notes there is that God's grace is just as sufficient to cover our sin and to make us competent for service. And praise the Lord, that's just from the first word in the book, right? Peter. Peter. Here he is. And God is using him, and God can use us. Here's what we see. Peter wrote, and he writes as one who was sent by Jesus. Peter writes as one sent by Jesus. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means a sent one or one who has the authority of. As apostles, they were, had the same authority as Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets would say, hey, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. They would show up and say, here's the message for the Lord. You had the, the, the preaching prophets and you had the writing prophets. We have five major prophets and 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament and, and the authority to, to have God's revelation, that they're writing and recording that the apostles would do the same in the New Testament. They would have authority to speak the very words of Christ. And so this isn't a letter just from some guy. This is a letter from, from Jesus to you. This is why you should pay attention to it, that the king of the universe has a word for you here, and he he's sent it. It's interesting, too, that this phrase, apostle of Jesus Christ, Wayne Grudem, will point out that That of Jesus Christ is not used pastors of Jesus Christ, teachers of Jesus Christ, evangelists of Jesus Christ. The only office that this phrase is associated with in the New Testament is apostles of Jesus Christ. That they had seen him, that they had known him, that they were sent intentionally by him. Which is why in our day with denominations that, that have apostles in them, I don't know what they are, but they're not an apostle like Peter is. One who can reveal and write down the very words that God intends for his people to have. And so Peter's one who writes, but he he writes as one who's sent by Jesus. And though we're not apostles, we are sent ones as well. The word apostle does mean a sent one and, and sent to a certain people. We have been commissioned and called as well to not write new words, but to take his words to the world. That's what we've been called to. And so as we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that we can know that we too have a responsibility with what's been entrusted to us to proclaim that and to share that and to reveal that. And so he writes then, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect. Or truth number three in your outline there that Peter wrote as one who was sent by Jesus to feed his sheep. When Peter was restored by Jesus, he was asked three times, Peter, do you love me? And every time Jesus responds, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And that's what Peter is doing with this letter. He is feeding Christ's sheep. Well, how do we know that it is Christ's people? How do we know that this letter is primarily written to believers? Well, he says, to those who are elect. To those who are elect. I would say to you that the word elect is meant to encourage us. It is not meant to exasperate us. It is meant to encourage us. He uses it, you heard me pray, to disciple us, not divide us. And it's so interesting in our day that... That words that Peter writes or Paul writes on the influence of the Holy Spirit are, are used to divide people who all claim to be in Jesus. He means no division here. He means discipleship. He's letting you know you were chosen. The word elect means chosen. And I love what another pastor says. He says, when you put something first, you're not trying to hide it. We've had the joy of having these conversations with the other church about the property and 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 Rob has the most responsibility to read the fine print but we've been reading through the details and then there's stuff you want to hide you don't put it first and in bold right and there's stuff that you hope they skim over you just kind of put it in the small fine print right it's all the things that we click on when we're asked to agree to something online that we don't read we just hit agree because we're like I'm sure it's fine right We just pledged to give them all of our children, but agree, you know, and so we don't take time to read the fine print. Peter is not writing in fine print. Peter is writing in bold print from the very beginning to say, you were chosen by God. Here's this letter. It's from Jesus. And it's to those of you who have been chosen by him. Well, I love that Peter is writing in particular to many who would have been Gentiles as they're in this area of asia minor and turkey the one who is the apostle to the jews paul was primarily an apostle to the gentiles but now the the one who is the apostle jews is going to use words that were used of israel elect exiles dispersion and he's using them as that picture of you've been grafted in exactly what we see from romans 9 that that you may not have had the the things as as paul writes in ephesians of uh, from your forefathers. You, were, you once were not a people, but now you are a people and these words that were true of them, this word that was ch- said of Israel is true of you as well, that you are family and that you are wanted. That's what it means here, that, that you were chosen. Your salvation is no accident. Your salvation is not because you, you came to your senses and said, well, I think I'll choose the Lord today all on your own. All of us choose him because he first chose us. That's what Jesus tried to teach his disciples. You didn't choose me. I I first chose you. And so God is doing this choosing. His choice is before the foundation of the world. And it's not based on any foreseen merit and what we would do. Good work to the result, not the cause of election. And his choice is not even based on foreseen faith. Faith is the result, again, of this. And so he writes and he says, hey, what you need to be reminded of before you begin is, hey, God chose you. God wanted. And that's so huge because we live in a world where people are often abandoned. Where people don't want us. Where we're picked last on the kickball team at recess, right? And what Peter begins with reminding them is God chose you. God wanted you. And the application for us here is that as Gentile believers, we're not stepchildren in God's family. But fully chosen and wanted. That, that we have been grafted in to his people. And then I would ask a question. Because when you begin to talk about election, there are questions that naturally pop up. Well, how can I know that I'm elect? And two, what about my children? I find that most arguments are not theological. They're personal. People want to know where their children are elect, right? Uh, I, I would say, how do you know that you're elect? Here's how. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The gospel call goes out to all. We are called to extend it to all. We should see each person in our city as a candidate for the gospel. To some we will be the aroma of life. To some will be the aroma of death. But we're not in charge of that. Our responsibility is to share the gospel with all. And those who respond, you can know that you're chosen. You know why? Because if you were not wanted by God, you would not respond. We would not seek him on our own. That's what Romans 3 says, that if left to ourselves, none of us are going to wake up that morning and say, well, I'll seek God today. That we are dead and we are depraved. That, that our faculties are clouded by sin and we're born in sin and we choose sin. And so it's his grace that initiates in our life. His grace. And some of you will differ on how much grace that is. Some of us grew up that he woos us and draws us. and works. Others would say he makes us alive to respond. But what we would both agree on his grace initiates and we respond to his calling in our life, his wanting us. And so how can you know if you are elect? don't wait till the end of this message. Here it is. Repent and believe. Respond to Christ. Trust Christ. And you can know you were chosen. All who truly repent and believe are the elect. They are the chosen. All right. That'll be a good clarifying question for Matthew later on. All right. Number four, then. Peter wrote as one who was sent by Jesus to feed his sheep who were sojourning and suffering. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, and there's something about these elect, they're exiles, and they're exiles of the dispersion. The word exile means a temporary resident in a foreign place or or those who reside as aliens. I don't mean green ones with antennas. I mean, people that are living in a place that's not their own for a, a certain point of time. They're not citizens there. They may be working there. They may be visiting there. They may be touring. We see it in our world. But they're not full citizens of that place. And he says, you are elect exiles. And the reason that you are, you are not citizen there it's because you're a citizen of heaven that he's chosen you and so the reason that he would front load i think the word elect before exiles is that we are not aliens mainly because people have rejected us we are aliens because god has chosen us that's why he phrases it the way he does so that's what causes us to be sojourners we're not sojourners because people don't like what we wear Or that we have a unibrow rather than two eyebrows, so restrictive, right? That this is not why we're alien. It may be why you're weird. It's not why you're a sojourner, right? That we are this way because of what God has done. God has done something to make us this. And I I loved what, what Grudem called the chapter in which he discussed 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. He says, Peter the apostle to sojourners in God's eternal care to sojourners that are in God's eternal care. And as he writes, these are people that are spread out. They're spread out in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And you see uh, the different cities here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, actually Pontus and Bithynia are going to share a region and then Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia are their own little groupings as well I took a picture and sent it to the staff to use, I put my finger over on no purpose to be like hey let's use this it would be awesome, me pointing uh, so uh, there's the, it's, it's in modern day Turkey and, and along these routes but let's pause just for a moment and consider this, to consider how long the church has been alive in a very difficult place in 2,000 years at least, the church has been alive in Turkey and facing suffering, and God has sustained his work there, and not much of the suffering has eased in Turkey in all of those years, right? And so he's writing to those who are sojourning, and also because they're suffering that's going to come a part of this, that as we see in our world, as we deal with immigration issues and aliens, uh, you don't Wherever you stand on the issue, it doesn't take much to see that when you're an alien in another country, there's a lot of rejection that you can experience. There's a lot of re- we don't want you here, we don't like your kind, we don't want your type, go away. And and sometimes in our in, in our place, threatened our dreams of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and wherever you you stand, there you can we can all say that there's rejection that's experienced. And Peter says, hey you're going to be rejected. You're going to be rejected because of Christ. And so what he's wanting to do is to center that rejection in sort of a God-centered choosing of them. I love what another pastor says. He wants to give them a God-centered explanation of their exile in the world. Your lives are rooted in God's eternal election. Your pain is rooted in God's eternal election. Your rejection by men is rooted in God's eternal election. So don't think all these things, all the troubles of being Christian foreigners is owing to God's rejecting you. It's owing to his choosing you. This is why this is going on and we're not to then withdraw from society the very fact that we're going to have suffering. so the monks and those who withdrew from the society Qumran and the Essene communities in the first centuries where the church pulled away from the world that was never Jesus's plan Jesus prayed for his disciples to be in the world but not of it and so Peter here is saying look you the reason you're going to suffer is because you're living these things out in front of people who don't love Jesus And I've tried to help you see that. That if we go to all the nations with the gospel, inevitably there are going to be people who aren't excited about that. If you live for Jesus at work, not everyone's going to be real excited about that. If you live for Jesus students in high school, not everyone's going to be real excited about that. And sometimes the Sermon on the Mount is countercultural inside the church. That there are people who are very comfortable where they are in apathy in their walk with Jesus. And so sometimes if we live for Christ in the church, that that it causes people to, to not be happy with those things in our lives and so here he says if you live these things out you need to know that there's going to be problems that come with that but all of that has been known and it's a part of the process and a part of the plan and so a couple application points for you there is just as sojourners we need to remember our true home and citizenship is in heaven as sojourners who belong to Jesus suffering should not surprise us Peter's going to write, and he's going to say two things about suffering. First of all, why are you acting as if something strange is occurring to you? He's going to say that in a few chapters. He says it's an opportunity to entrust our soul to our faithful creator. And then second, he says don't suffer as those who've chosen sin. The suffering that he's talking about us being empowered to live through is the suffering for being faithful. It is the suffering of obedience. He says it's a whole different thing when we suffer because of disobedience. And he says that's not what our suffering should be. Point five then, in in your outline, Peter wrote as one who was sent by Jesus to feed his sheep who were sojourning and suffering, and he's calling them to hope. And here's how he calls them to hope. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And here's what he's letting them know. When the world goes crazy, my love for you is secure. My love for you is secure we want you to understand your life in this world in relation to what the Trinity has done and is doing for you that's how you need to navigate the lens that you look through and so our election is rooted in the foreknowledge of God and it's experienced by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and for the aim of obeying Jesus Christ so what is it that should fuel our hope and in the Bible hope is thumbs up not fingers crossed right LSU this fall will play seven teams that are projected to be in the top 25, right? This is what I know all of you memorize that. And so we already have Coach O as our head coach, so we're already at a disadvantage. But then now we have to play seven teams that will be in the top 25. LSU fans, hope is clearly like this and fades. I mean, it fades quickly, right? First kickoff. And so this is what we do here, right? This is not the biblical means of hope. The biblical means of hope is this. It is certain. It is rock solid. It is true. And where he wants you to have hope as these elect exiles, that this isn't home. And as you look a lot like Jesus, you're going to suffer for it. He wants to ground it in some things that God has done something for us that the world can never change. So no matter what they do to you, they won't be able to change these three truths right here. Number one, that God the Father has always known and will always know us. Listen to this before you were formed in your mother's womb you were foreknown before your mom and dad even knew you were on the way you know I've, I've said often when we moved here you know we moved into the second floor with my in-laws and we had three kids already and then one day Niram comes down the steps and he comes running to me I thought he was bringing me a popsicle stick he was not he was bringing me the results of a test and and on that test, it let us know that Alistair was on the way. And I, admittedly, I spiraled into a bit of depression for at least two weeks. They were two weeks solid. I was like, Lord, I already know how selfish I am. And you have shown that with three kids that already there's opportunity to know how selfish I am with a wife who I'm called to die to self. And I don't want to die to self. And now we're pastoring a church plant with living in the second floor of my in-laws. And what, what should we do? Add a fourth child. Yes, Lord, that's, that's awesome. That makes perfect sense, right? And the amazing thing, though, is that before we even knew any of our children were on the way, those of our children who've come to Christ, God knew them before they were ever formed. There's a word here that he's known. And, and what it means is a kind of knowing that's personal and powerful. It's going to be the same word that's said of Jesus in verse 20. Look in chapter 1, verse 20. It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So I can tell you that foreknown doesn't mean God is picking those who will pick him because Jesus isn't picked because God knew he would pick him. That, that can't be what foreknown means. There's an idea of relationship that's already there. And I love what Nielsen has said. If you are a believer, God has known you this deeply forever just as he's known Christ. And we do not have to create our identity. We're known, eternally known by him. That it's this expression of concern of his. The expression foreknowledge does not mean that God had information in advance about Christ or about his elect. It means that both Christ and his people were the objects of God's loving concern from all eternity. I I tweeted about this yesterday. I I don't tweet a lot these days. Uh, I'm only really intentional when I do it, but... We live in a world in which people want to make their name known. They have just a small window to do that. We saw that from Ecclesiastes. And we saw the vanity of that because eventually you die and you're forgotten. Right? That's what we saw from Ecclesiastes. But it doesn't stop people from thinking, I'll be different. I'll be different, right? And here's the amazing thing that in, in a world that so much is about making your name known, students, get your name known as an athlete or in these clubs or student body president. It's, his homecoming queen this stuff this this pressure here's the most incredible truth we could rest in it matters not if anyone else in the world ever knows our name we are known by the one who matters most and that we were known before he even formed us and so this is written for their comfort not their confusion that you, as you go through this, you, you were chosen by God. You were known by him. So the suffering isn't happening because God's not watching. That it's grounded in the fact that he does know you. And I loved another phrase that Nielsen said. Peter helps us experience our exile not as lost orphans, but as chosen children heading home. That's what it gives a picture of here. How else does he do this? So how is it that we become elect exiles? Well, through the foreknowledge of God. He's working, he's choosing, and then it's applied to us through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has a role here. Paul will say almost the same thing in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul writes the same picture here, that salvation comes through the Spirit's work in our life. And, of course, Titus, Paul will write and say that God saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what God is appointing, the Spirit is applying, and Jesus is going to accomplish and pay for in his blood, right? Which gets us to the next part. So so God the Father has always known and will always know us. God the Spirit has given us a life that the world can never kill. Isn't that a glorious truth? They may take your body and they may take your family. And we've seen this. We've heard of families buried alive in India. I've heard of a pastor in Sudan who had to watch his whole family slaughter. We, we've seen this. But they can never kill eternal life. They can never kill the life that God has granted. And then last, God... The Son has cleansed us with his blood, which no sin can can cancel here. So in this way, you have, and we're gonna look at it through a different lens in just a moment, so I'll come back to that. But you have God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son working to accomplish this. And so we should have hope because you know what? Who is gonna overcome what the Trinity has accomplished? No one. That no matter what you experience as you sojourn here for just a little while, He will never overcome what God has done for us. And they're all on board. The son isn't having to convince an angry father. Oh God, I'm so loving. And you're so wrathful. Can't we have a few of these? No. Peter is telling you that the father and the son and the spirit are all on the same page. And in unity, they're accomplishing your salvation. We can have hope because we've been saved by the triune God. And I, I just wonder... Is this how you see yourself? Like when you walked in here today and when you go out there and when when the devil causes you to doubt, do you see yourself as one who was foreknown by God the Father, who was sanctified by the Spirit, and who has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ? This is your identity. I don't care where you work, what you do, or what you have. This is where our identity is found. It's rooted, this is who we are, right? And we'll see next week in verses three through five that it fuels hope. Now on to the last two points quickly that Peter wrote as one who was sent by Jesus to feed his sheep who were sojourning and suffering, calling them to hope, and now let's add holiness. There is a whole part of being set apart, that sanctification of the Spirit. Certainly it means that when we're made alive, but there is the process of what the Spirit helps us do is grow in Jesus, That each year we look more like Christ, right? And that's what it means to be a church. It's a partnership too. We're supposed to be helping each other. It's one of the hopes of life group. That we help each other put away sin. That we would be honest with each other. I want to encourage you in your life groups this year. Be honest. Share your struggles. We get caught in sin because we didn't share our struggles. And we don't share our struggles because we want everyone to think we're better than we are. And yet we need every bit of grace that we have, right? And so that we are, the Spirit does set us apart. That's what that word sanctification and, and renewal, but it is a continued growing in that, and then that we're set apart for obedience to Jesus. This is why for for many of us who grew up in churches where the emphasis was on if we just get people to pray the sinner's prayer, they're good. They can go on with their Willy Wonka golden ticket of life, you know? And yet he says, no. God has chosen you and foreknown you and the Spirit sanctifying you for obedience to Jesus. That for the first time, you can live for his glory. The, the catechism question we started the service with. The chief end of man is to, to glorify God by enjoying him, right? That we can enjoy him and obey him. That, that we have the means to do this. Because in obedience is the fullness of joy, See, some of us hear this word. We're chosen for obedience to Jesus. And we're like, oh, Debbie Downer. And they're with the party. It's like when I was a kid. And, and every time I'd run in the store, mom would be like, no. All right? Always trying to hold back my fun. When I don't let my kids run with scissors. right? Why are you trying to rain on our parade, dad? You know, I just want you to have highs when you grow up, you know? Or at least through third grade. My man, bro, is on his, like, third set of front teeth, you know? And so... He says, we, we love and we want to protect and provide. And so we see obedience, we're like, ugh, restriction. And yet obedience is the only path of full joy. So he says, Look, you've been chosen for full joy. Walk in this, and you will have what you need to do so. And so, just the application truth for you there is we've not only been saved from something, but saved for something, and that we are set apart to serve to serve him. It's not just set apart and cruise to heaven, but for obedience for Jesus Christ. And I love the picture of sprinkling with his blood. There are three Old Testament pictures of where this occurs. I was going to do it, but I didn't know who would want that this morning. And so I was going to bring some hyssop and just see how it rolled out from there. But we have three pictures in the Old Testament. One is that when God meets with his people at Sinai, he has Moses take that blood and, and sprinkle it over the people because the covenant had been established. You're mine. I have purchased you. We are in this relationship. The second picture is the priests who were, who were cleansed. They were sprinkled with that blood. And, and you're going to find in Peter's letter, you're all priests. You're all ministers because of what Jesus has done for us. And then the last picture is when one was cured of leprosy, they would be sprinkled with that blood to, to have this picture of cleansing. I don't think we have to pick just one of those. I think that we can pick all of those when we hear the sprinkling of his blood that that God has brought us into a unique relationship, claiming us as his own, paying the price, which was the blood of his son, putting us in his service and cleansing us from all sin that would keep us from being able to do that. You have been sprinkled and cleansed. And what I love about this, God chose you, God knew you, the Spirit did this. Jesus did it. It's nothing. We've not reached yet what you do. This is what he's done for you to make what comes later possible in these pictures that are here. So it gets us then to the closing word. Peter wrote as one who was sent by Jesus to feed his sheep who were sojourning and suffering, calling them to hope and holiness as they received God's multiplied grace and peace. That's, that's the summary of 1, 1 through 2. He ends with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You know, the wonder is not that God is able to extend mercy and grace. The wonder is that he wants to. And he does so according to his own counsel and to the praise of his glory. And that he wants to do it to the very people who've all gone away from him, who've all rejected him. That grace and peace would be multiplied. And again, your application points there, the same resources promised to Peter's original audience are promised to us as well grace and peace from god are ours in christ alone there's no other way that grace and peace come from god but through christ and christ alone his substitution on our behalf is completely necessary and so uh, as we come to wrap this up we're going to sing response songs of truth i'll invite mitchell to come come now i want to i want to say a word i love what another pastor has pointed out so you come to church today and we start first peter and I know that there are some of us who always come and gather and like, hey man, give me something practical. I'm struggling as a husband. I'm struggling as a wife. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling as a single. Man, just give us practical, practical, practical. Although I know most of you are, who, who've been here long enough. I mean, we walk through Ecclesiastes and so uh, even in there, we, we try to make truth that is very deep practical. I love that where Peter starts you think you would need practical wisdom on how to suffer well for Jesus? Hey man, I'm, su- I'm suffering. Give me a couple tips, Peter. Give me top seven tips for how to suffer well for Jesus, right? Or hey, I'm having a real discouraging time. How could I have hope, right? Give, give, just give me these bullets. I love that where Peter under the influence of the Holy Spirit starts is deep doctrine because that deep doctrine is meant to fuel your hope. That deep doctrine is meant to fuel your holiness. You have been wanted by God and he can't show you that any more clearly than that he sent his son. And then he placed upon his son your most wretched rebellions. All of them. And then so much so that he intended to follow through with it that he didn't give Jesus a pass. He poured every bit of wrath into him and then he raised him from the dead and seated him above every rule and authority and name. You've been wanted. I don't care if your family abandoned you when you were a kid. I don't care if you don't feel wanted by your spouse. God wants you and he can't show you that more clearly than what he's done. And his wanting of you is not because he knew you would grow up and do missions or you would work with eight days of hope or you would sacrifice for our building fund or any of these things. His wanting of you is according to his own affections and so his own affections drove his actions. And so whatever you think you've done this week that will disappoint him and change that, the one who has known you from eternity past will not stop knowing you because you sinned last week. You are grounded in the knowledge that wanted to know you. To form you in every intentional way in your mother's womb. And then to apply that with the power of his spirit. That he doesn't send you in the world to suffer alone. He says, I'm with you. Matter of fact, I'm moving in you. So let's go together. Jesus so identifies with our sufferings that he says to Saul... Why are you persecuting me? So he says, I'm not asking you to go. You you have the very power of the Spirit and all of this for the greatest purpose in life, to obey Jesus for your full joy. Sprinkled, cleansed, that you've been separated and called into the ministry and covered. So don't let sin keep you from ministering this week. It's already been covered. It's already been cleansed what you confess. And so listen to what one pastor says. I speak to believers this morning to establish your hearts in the truth. God wants you to know today that none of the hardships you undergo as aliens and exiles in this world are a surprise to God. He's chosen you for this. It's part of your purifying discipline. Your troubles as an exile here are not absurd or meaningless. They're a loving plan and wisdom of God's all-seeing, infallible choice. Your exile life is rooted in God. You're engulfed in the electing love of God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Your life is from Him and through Him and for Him. And then he says, dwell on this truth. Let it sink in and touch the deepest core of your identity. God the Father has chosen you. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. And Jesus covers you with his blood and empowers your obedience. Who doesn't need that word? Who doesn't need that word? So this morning, let me offer a few things. If you have never repented and believed in Jesus, we beg you to do that this morning, even in these next few moments, even as Mitch sings. You can stand, you can stay in your seat, and you can simply voice to God, I'm sorry, I have rebelled you are my only hope for salvation forgive me for my sin and empower me to yield my life for the all of my life to you. simple as that that we would turn from our sin and we would turn to him today I want to call you to rejoice in the united affections and actions of the trinity on your behalf Jesus doesn't have to convince anybody the father, has it. The father did not have to convince Jesus to go to the cross we have to convince our children to clean their rooms the Father didn't have to convince Jesus to do the most costly sacrifice ever. United affections and actions of the Trinity. So do you have hope? Are you living in holiness? And maybe this morning, maybe we all just need a fresh experience of that multiplied grace and peace that comes through Jesus. It's okay to beg God for that this morning. To say, I need a fresh experience of your grace and the peace that comes from you through Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to study this book. Thank you for what you did in Peter's life. Some of us feel like there are things that we've done in our past that disqualify us or keep us from being used by you, but this word begins, this letter begins with the word Peter. And so your grace was sufficient to cover all his sin. Your grace is sufficient to cover all our sin. And Peter was not formally trained through education, but he was empowered by your spirit. He'd spent three years with your son And so, yes, he is capable in the power of your spirit to write this letter. And so may we have that hope that you will equip us to be competent for the service that you're calling us to. And, Father, that we are not apostles in the sense that we write new words, but we have all the words that you want us to have at this time. What are we doing with those words? Are we reading them? Are we praying them? Are we memorizing them? And to whom are we taking them? I pray that you would help us to live as those who've been sent out. Thank you for choosing us, Father. Thank you for wanting us. Thank you for, in doing so, making us exiles and strangers, that this isn't our home. There is a home to which we are headed. So forgive us when we too conveniently make this our home, that we live as if our citizenship is just here in this world now. Help us to repent of that and to live for our true home, Thank you that we can have hope no matter what suffering comes because your knowledge of us will never change. The work of your spirit will never change and the blood of of Christ will never diminish. And so, Father, fill us with hope. Move us to live in holiness. May we rejoice in the grace and peace that has been multiplied to us through your initiation and through your accomplishing of it through Christ and Christ alone. So use First Peter. Use the whole book, but use these first two verses. Use the depth of this doctrine to fuel our praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together this morning.